Please join me as I pray for us as we approach this text together. Gracious God, we pause and ask that in these moments you would help us to engage in something that's not just intellectual, it's not just human effort or will, it's not entertainment. What we're asking for is an encounter with the divine. We believe your word to be living and active. We come to situate ourselves as a people ready to receive. And I pray that as we engage with the whole of our spirit, the whole of who we are, that you would leave us changed and that into the places where we are most tempted towards hopelessness, towards believing that ours is a story of despair, I pray that into that space we would receive this prophetic word of hope and that the hope of Jesus would flicker and light our world in a way that um, we can receive and rejoice in that we can we can see clearly again today so give us relentless hope in Jesus we're asking that you would do that by your power these, in these moments. God, we look forward to what you have for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This uh, week, my four-year-old and I were putting up Christmas lights. Um, it's honestly, I love Christmas lights. I don't love putting them up. It makes it a little bit better when you've got a four-year-old in tow. Uh, he's not super helpful, but he's fun, you know. He's a good conversation partner, and we were working the, the lights through the bushes and he was just like really perplexed. He asked the question a couple of times and he was demanding a, a, a more full answer. He's like, but why, dad? Why the lights? Why does everybody, it's, we're celebrating the birth of Jesus. Why do we put lights up? And so I said to him, I said, you know, Judah, Jesus is the light of the world. These lights are not like blinding. You know, they're the little white twinkling lights. I said, it's, it's not blinding lights, but we're going to put these up and no matter how dark the night gets, the light is still going to flicker. And our hope at Christmas, like the reason we celebrate Christmas is because the light of the world, no matter how dark the moment seems, the light of the world has broken in. It shines truly, even when it feels like a flicker against great darkness. And the truth is, the word for my four-year-old while putting lights in the bushes is in many ways the word that Micah has for the people of the southern kingdom of Israel in 700 BC, and I believe the word that God has for us this morning, that Christmas hope, like the sort of hope that we come together to celebrate and cling to in the midst of Advent, a, a, a real Christmas hope is relentless. It flickers amidst great darkness. It speaks a better word when the circumstances or the moment feels heavy and dark and we wonder, what am I to do with this? In that space, Christmas hope speaks a different and a better word. And this is what Micah was commending to his people at this moment, and this, I believe, is what God wants to commend to us this morning, that no matter how dark the backdrop of your current circumstances, there's a light that shines, and this is what we come to celebrate in the Christmas season. Let's see if we can make sense of this together for the original hearers so that it will have its proper power 
for us today. Look back at Micah 5 and verse 1. This is where he paints the picture of how dark the backdrop really is for his original audience. He says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. The daughter of troops there is Jerusalem. Micah is addressing Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom of Israel. And he's saying, Get ready for battle. Get your troops together. And the reason is this. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Okay, we need to do just a little bit of history together in order for this text to have the, the, the weight that it is intended to have. Okay, so a little bit of history. There was a great king. Everyone else in the Old Testament is kind of a footnote to this king. His name is David. He was king in 1000 BC. And his son was Solomon. And Solomon was the wisest man on the world, but his, his sin made him foolish. And because of the folly of the wisest man in the world, division broke in to the kingdom of Israel. And all of a sudden, there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. You heard of this? Maybe some of you? Yes? Israel and Judah. Okay? There was a separation of the kingdoms. A couple of hundred years later, in 722 BC, Assyria, this wicked, oppressive, aggressive nation, comes in and wipes out the northern kingdom. So God promised this land to Abraham, and he delivered the people through the waters of Egypt, and he set them free, and he gave them this land, and they had the land. But now, what was a small nation and a promised land, the the majority of the northern land has all been carried away and now there's just a speck of a country left in the southern portion this is judah okay jerusalem is the capital city micah is speaking to those people in 701 bc 20 years after the assyrians took everyone away up north all their cousins have been carried away into exile okay and then you can read about it in second kings 18 the the moment that micah is speaking into is assyria has come back And they're laying siege against this southern kingdom. Everybody who has seen their friends killed and carried away and exiled, they're now, they're coming for us. And Hezekiah is the king of the southern kingdom. And he comes out with his hat in his hands, kind of nervous to Assyria. And he goes, I'm sorry, Assyria. What can we do to make this right? And Assyria says, you need to pay us thousands of pounds of silver and gold to make this right. And Hezekiah says, okay, okay, whatever I need to do. And he actually goes back and he strips the gold and the silver from the temple of God. And he musters all the wealth of the southern kingdom to pay off Assyria. And we learn pretty quickly in that story that it doesn't actually pay them off. They keep pressing in and it's only God that can deliver them. Their gold and their silver can't deliver them. Only God is going to be able to deliver them. But it's in that moment This text where it says the judge of Israel has been struck with a rod. The people in the southern kingdom are watching their king, Hezekiah, strip the gold from the temple and go, please have mercy on us, wicked, oppressive, distant nation Assyria. Now, what must it have been like? Can we just engage our imagination for a moment so that we can feel this prophetic word in the way that we need to? What would it have been like to be the people of God living in Jerusalem in 700 BC in this moment? What would they be thinking? What would you be thinking if you lived there? I think it would sound something like, is God who he said he is? Does he love us? 
Does he see us? He promised us land. He promised us a king in the line of David that would be on the throne. But now here's Hezekiah and he's a puppet to Assyria and our land is gone and here we are struggling. They're wondering, can we trust any of the stuff we read? We read that he's the God that splits the Red Sea and sets his people free and wins victories for his people. When's he going to fight for us? Those are the people that Mike is speaking to. And it's into that place that he speaks that the hope of Advent. And so if we're going to hear this properly, we have to be willing to, to admit the places where we experience that still. We're not under siege of Assyria, but some of us, quite frankly, think that that, might, that sounds not so bad compared to what we're dealing with. Now, I've, I've talked with some people that feel like, Ooh, it's not an actual distant nation, but my soul feels like it's under siege. I'm so flooded with anxiety or depression, and I've been begging God to, to cause it to flee. And I know he can. He fights for his people, and he says he will, and he says he won't. But day after day, I ask, and he doesn't answer. Or I've been begging God to deliver in this sort of way. The, the Christmas season exposes so much loneliness and sadness, does it not? It's oftentimes... When the lights are blinking and families are together and people are singing the happy songs, that the sadness becomes more real. I've talked with more friends that say, I feel like this season of joy and happiness is like my soul is under siege. And we may be experiencing loss or a poor diagnosis. It may be some frustration at home. But the truth is, because we all live east of Eden, we on one level or another can understand the weight that these original listeners were feeling. And we need to if we're going to be able to receive the word of hope and the way that we ought to receive it. Because Mike is going to say something. He's actually going to say that we have the capacity for a bold, unswerving, relentless hope that holds even in immense darkness. And so he's inviting us to envision and feel the darkness so that we can celebrate the presence of this flickering light that is relentless, that's unstoppable. You see, he speaks into the space and he starts to tell us why Christmas hope is so relentless. And we're going to see it in a few ways. The first is this. Even in the midst of your darkness, your moment, whatever it looks like, the first reason that Christmas hope is so relentless is because it's ancient. It's really old. It has stood the test of time. Did you hear it in verse 2 and 3? Look back with me. He says this. But you. It's a transition. The adversative. He just painted a really dark picture. But he says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. So a small town in a southern kingdom, all that's left. He's going the most unexpected place. He says, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of the brothers shall return to the people of Israel. He's saying, there's one who's coming that we've been waiting for a very long time for, from ancient of days. And when he comes, when she delivers him, then those that have been scattered, those that have been exiled, those that have been lost under this judgment will be brought back. He's speaking a word of hope, and the, the 
anchor point and the first movement of this hope in the face of great darkness is how ancient it is, how it has stood the test of time. Now, the, the truth is, simply saying that something is old doesn't always breed confidence and hope, right? Like, there's a reason that we don't drive my car to see family. It's really old and it doesn't breed a lot of confidence. Like, you'll hear me coming and there's not a lot of confidence that I'm going to arrive, you know, that I'm going to make it. It's 17 years old. I love my car. It's still cranking, but it's like, you hear me around the corner. And so we don't drive that car to see the family because we're not sure we're going to make it there or make it back. So it's not just being old that breeds confidence, but it's being old and having a, a trusted track record. It's like the difference between my car and my, my house. We live in a 75-year-old ranch house that has stood the test of time. It's been through a lot of storms in Houston. And so when my boys get nervous because the wind is blowing really strong or the lightning is striking or the rain is coming down, it's helpful to say to them, do you know how long this house has been here? How many times do you think the winds were strong and the storms raged over the last 75 years? And all of a sudden you start to realize like, I'm walking around in something, I'm inhabiting something that has stood the test of time and I can have confidence because of its track record. The first reason that Christmas hope flickers even in great darkness is because it's ancient. God's been doing something not just in your lifetime, though he certainly has been doing that. He doesn't just operate in decades. He doesn't operate in centuries. He operates in millennia. He spoke the first word about the hope of Jesus coming in the Garden of Eden, right on the heels of sin. And what he said is this, there's one coming that's going to fight for you. He's going to fight the serpent and he's going to crush his head. That was recorded for us some 3,400 years ago. 3,000 years ago, all of the, the language around the Davidic king took shape, that there's going to be a king who rules and rules over the nations. There's going to be a king that, that suffers and, and dies but, and is buried with the rich even though he dies with the poor, and then he's going to raise again. We get those sorts of prophecies about 3,000 years ago. This prophecy, prophecy from Micah comes 2,700 years ago. 2,000 years ago, when Jesus actually was born, do you remember the story of the, the wise men who traveled all the way across the desert to worship the baby king? And they showed up in Jerusalem, the daughter of the troops, the, the very city that Micah is speaking to, and they said, where is the baby king? And the scribes got together, and they, they opened up this scroll, Micah 5. And they said, you're looking for the promised king? We know where he's going to be born because it's been promised for a very long time. O Bethlehem of Ephrathah. And it's at that moment that the wise men go down the road and they get to worship the baby king. You see, what has been told of 3,400 and 3,000 and 2,700 years ago burst onto the scene 2,000 years ago and has continued to bear relentless, hopeful fruit in the life of the church. And so I just need you to hear this. Whatever the circumstances are today in your life that threaten to make you feel like the darkness has been pulled tight and laid over everything, it's helpful. The first note that produces Christmas hope is to recognize that my story isn't primarily about me and that it's been taking shape for millennia, 
And that there's so many moments where in the present circumstances we go, oh, this feels so dark. Maybe God has forgotten us in this moment. We asked specific prayers and those prayers weren't answered and we're wondering where is God? And what God is saying is, I'm doing a thing that I've been doing for millennia and it is as true in this moment as it has ever been. It's ancient. Walk around in it. Recognize that it's not going anywhere. And now your little story this little minute that you've got while you're alive on the planet, it has home in this grand story. He's going, it's ancient. It's ancient. God is in the business and has been for thousands of years of painting beautiful pictures with dark colors, and he can do it with your story. The hope of Christmas says it's ancient. And then it says this, it's secure. It's secure. Look back at the text with me. Verse 4 in the first part of 5 says this, He shall stand, this one that is born in Bethlehem. It says he will stand and he will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. This promised one that is born, what he's saying is this, that he will stand up for his people and he will shepherd them. He will lead people that are lost. He will feed people that are hungry. He will tend to those that cannot fight for themselves. He will be a shepherd for them. He says he will stand and he will shepherd. And then did you hear the way he piled up all those power words in verse 4 and 5? Strength and majesty and his greatness to the ends of the earth. He's painting a picture of this promised one that is ancient, that when he shows up, when he begins to lead and guide, he will do so with such power that it will be undeniable. He will secure his people. He will be their peace. He shows up. Micah 5 is promising that he's going to show up, that people are going to look and say, you came, you came for me. Reminds me, a few years ago, I got asked to speak at a, a youth event in Colorado around New Year's, and it included that my family was invited. We were all going to get to go skiing for a few days, and I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm in on that gig. That sounds great. I get to preach Jesus and hit the slopes with my family. And, and so we were flying from Houston to, Den, to Dallas to Denver. And so Ashley and me... Our two older boys were much younger, and our youngest child was just an infant. He had just been born a few months prior. And so we caught our flight to Dallas. We got to Dallas, and our bags caught a flight to Denver that we did not catch because of some storms and our flight being canceled. And so they said, good news, your bags are there. Bad news, you're not going there. And we were like, so, till when? We don't know. Maybe tomorrow. And so we were in Dallas, can't go home, can't go forward, and also don't have any of our stuff. So this is not like being under siege from Assyria, don't get me wrong. But when you're looking at a little baby and you've got no diapers because they're on a plane to Colorado and you've got no clothes and it's New Year's Eve and you're far from home, it feels a little bit like siege. You know, when the kids start crying and they're saying, I'm hungry, and you're going, I really need a diaper for this kid. Um, and so I called my friend. Uh, he's been my, one of my dearest friends since the eighth grade who lives in Dallas. And I called him, and it was one of those like, somewhat timid phone calls of like, hey man, I know it's New Year's Eve, and I know you have a family and your own thing going, but here's the deal. 
we're in Dallas, our bags are in Colorado, we don't have anywhere to go. And he said, I'm on my way. And he, he showed up, and at this point, you know, several people are crying. I won't say who in my family, but <laughs> like there's tears, and there's, the clothes are gone, the snacks are gone. He shows up, we're just trying to hold it together. And he shows up with a big smile and hugs us all, and come on, we're ready for you. And by the time we get home, his wife had been up in the attic going through their old clothes, finding clothes that fit the infant. And they had diapers and food and a fire in the fireplace. And we rung in the new year together. And that night as we were going to sleep, preparing to wake early and catch the flight to go on our way, it was like this deep sense of security and love and confidence. It was like, you came for us. Like you came for us when we felt really exposed and overwhelmed. It's kind of like that you came with a question mark exclamation point. Like you came. You came for us in a way that I don't know that anybody really could have in this moment. And you delivered in a beautiful way. You see, the invitation at Christmas, like as we cultivate proper Christmas hope, we recognize that it's ancient and then the invitation is every time you see a manger scene, maybe you've got one in your living room like we do, or you drive in the streets and you see them out front of a house all lit up, and every time you see a manger scene, the thing that ought to bubble up in our hearts is, you came. You came for me in strength and majesty to stand up and fight, to be a shepherd to lead and to guide and to feed and to clothe when I couldn't do any of it for myself. Like here we were an exposed people. And the truth is he came globally and he comes personally. And even in the moments where we think these particular circumstances that I'm in are so dark, he's going, yes, I see you. And it's ancient and it's secure because I've come for you. You see, there it went. The invitation of Advent for us now as a people who've seen the baby show up, we've seen the baby in the manger, is to look back and say, you came. I know that you're the sort of God that fights for your people because I've seen it in real time past. That's who you are. So it's ancient and it's secure. You came. And then lastly, the reason Christmas hope flickers even in the midst of darkness is because in his coming, he brings deliverance. And I want, I want you to hear this with me in the, the second half of verse 5 and 6. It says this, When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of man, and they will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Now, it's at this point where Hebrew scholars, in wrestling with what all is Micah doing in this text, recognize that Assyria is standing for more than Assyria. Assyria ultimately doesn't transgress the borders. It doesn't trample in the palaces on this particular journey or really ever because it ends up being Babylon that's going to, it's the Babylonians that are coming for the southern kingdom. But the reality is that, that Micah is speaking about a generalized enemy in terms of Assyria. He's going, okay, here's the enemy right now that you can understand. And I'm going to speak about Assyria for a moment. Like, let's talk about your enemy 
and what's going to be done with them. This happens throughout the prophetic literature. Babylon, Egypt, they end up standing for more than just Babylon and more than just Egypt and the prophets. Because in essence, what they're saying to the people is, you know you have an enemy, and your enemy right now has this name. But now let me talk about what I intend to do with your enemy. It's almost as if the prophets look just over the heads of the particular enemy in the moment, and they say, there's a greater enemy, and God's not just going to deal with this one. He's going to deal with that one. And what's being said here about the baby that's going to be born in Bethlehem is that he is going to come and deliver. And in between now and his ultimate deliverance, it even says there's going to be, did you see in, in verse uh, 5, it says there's going to be seven shepherds and eight princes. I think it's helpful to note that, that the, the construction here in Hebrew poetry, I, I think we need to be careful about not stretching it for too much like literal specificity. I think what he's saying is the idea that, that most scholars would say is this idea of seven then eight is in essence like God will give you whatever it takes in your particular circumstances in the moment. If it's seven princes or eight shepherds, if it's, it's uh, what, or seven shepherds or eight princes, it's God's going to sustain you in the current circumstances until the ultimate deliverance comes. So what he's saying is, okay, here's your enemy, but there's a grander enemy and God is fighting there. This child who's coming has come to fight the globalized enemy, the true enemy. Because by the time Jesus burst onto the scene as this little baby and then he grows up into a man walking and living, the enemy is not Assyria. Now it's Rome and everybody's wondering, are you going to set us free from Rome? In the same way that the people of Micah's age were going, are you going to set us free from the people of Assyria? And Jesus, even as he rides in on the triumphal entry the week before his passion, Everybody was thinking, now the king comes. Hosanna, save us. You're going to destroy Rome. But Jesus was looking right past Rome at a cross and saying, what I've come to fight is the true enemy of your soul. Sin and death itself, I am going to, I am going to defeat the true enemy. I bring ultimate deliverance. And Jesus, as the great shepherd that this text talks about, he stands up and he fights for us by taking the very enemy that threatens each of us into his own bones and being laid in a grave and then rising three days later in victory, he stands authoritatively over all. And so the truth is today that Christmas hope says it's ancient, it's secure, and it will deliver. We know it will deliver because the tomb is empty, but can we all admit the darkness is still present? Jesus is ascended and at the right hand of God, but we still deal with the darkness. And this is the reality of Advent. That the Christmas hope flickers as we say two things simultaneously. You came. Come quickly. Both statements in the New Testament are true about our relationship to Jesus. What we do is we look back at the baby, we look back at the cross, we look back at the empty tomb, and we say, you came. Deliverance has burst onto the scene. We have a hope that is secure. It can support the weight of our lives. And in the midst of real darkness, what we can say is, in King Jesus, will you come quickly? Will you come quickly for us? 
And the Christian hope is a flickering light in the face of darkness that says both of those things simultaneously. We say it's ancient and it's secure and deliverance is coming. And so we stand in this place and say, you came, come. This is the Christian hope of the Advent season. This is Christmas, Christmas hope. So my invitation to you is to remember. I think our crying sin under all of our sin, you may think that your most pressing sin is your lust or your greed or your selfishness. And those are presenting issues that are being produced in our lives in different ways that we need to repent of. But the repentance under the repentance is often our forgetfulness. That we're trying to strive to scrap something out by our own strength and our own might. Going about things not in God's way, but in our way. And what he's saying is, would you restore proper hope by remember, this thing is ancient. Your life is part of a grand story. And it's secure in my love. And deliverance is coming. And so hold to your flickering hope in the midst of darkness, proclaiming he came, come quickly. This is what it looks like to hold the Christmas hope in the midst of real darkness. Amen? Let me pray for us.